years, 140 years, it's only happened 23 times. Nobody has done it more than once. That means more people have orbited the moon than have achieved this rarest of sports achievements. Lee Richmond, a lefty, and John Montgomery Ward were the first two to achieve it, and their feats were separated by only five days. The last three to master their sport at this level did it within a period of only a few months. This, in spite of the fact that the span between games has been as long as 23 and 33 seasons. In fact, only one other year had more than one, and there were but two then. So, are you into Jeopardy? This is your question. What is a perfect game? In baseball, it means that not a single runner reaches base. No hits, no walks, no hit batters, no errors that lead to a runner getting on base, not even by somebody other than the pitcher. An absolutely perfect game. In more than 140 years, that's in excess of 300,000 games, only 23 pitchers have achieved the feat. Did I tell you no one's done it more than once? And understand the odds. Less than 1 in 13,000 games is a perfect game. Wow, (laughs) that's amazing. Now, if you know anything at all about baseball, you will not be surprised to hear that the first of 21 men to master the game this way in baseball's modern era from 1900 was Cy Young. To this day, the best pitcher in each league is given a Cy Young Award. The first two perfect games were in 1880 and only, as we said, five days apart. In 2010, there were two more and only 20 days apart. And in 2012 there were an unprecedented three perfect games in one season, one each in April, June, and August. Two of these involved the Seattle Mariners. One win, one loss. (laughs) The middle game of those three, the one the Mariners were not involved in, had a few interesting records. The winning team scored 10 runs, the most in any perfect game. And after nearly a half century... Matt Cain finally matched Sandy Koufax's 14 strikeouts, the most for a perfect game. In the modern era, Cy Young's came in 1904. There were only two more before Don Larson's in 1956, the one and only postseason perfect game. Cy Young was old for a baseball player. (laughs) When he pitched a perfect game, he was 37. It was 100 years and 13 days before someone older pitched a perfect game. The ex-Mariner, Randy Johnson, at age 40. So what's the point of all this? And what does this have to do with the Bible? (laughs) Okay, these baseball players are superstars. If you look up perfect games in baseball on Google, you'll find that each individual game is discussed in detail. Each game on many, many sites. (laughs) And, you know, hey, they were perfect games. But what Paul the Apostle does, almost nonchalantly, is even more rare. And it identifies him as one of only a few super saints. Listen to Luke, an eyewitness, as he relates what happened in Troas. But oh, wait, wait. First, we should note, 
that most houses in that part of the world had those thick, thick adobe-style walls, and all the windows were really just large openings in those broad walls with cushions, cushion seats on them. They had shutters, but those on the upper floors were only closed in inclement weather. And also their lights, their lamps, were oil lamps, and they tended to kind of make one sleepy. Okay, you got the picture? Now on to the story. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away live and were not a little comforted. <laughs> I'll say, wow, now that's Paul the super saint. Do you know how many people, besides Jesus, in the entire history of the world have raised people from the dead? I'll give you a hint. It's less than the number of people who have pitched a perfect game. Way less. The Bible records some 6,000 years of history, 4,000 of that in what we might call the modern era. <laughs> and in that four millennia, only four mere humans are recorded to have raised people from the dead. That's right. An average of one per millennia. <laughs> Not an average of one every six years, like baseball's perfect game. One every thousand years. And sort of like pitchers and perfect games. In his life, each one of these sees only one person raised. Now there's a special event we'll look at. It's quite fascinating and it brings the total to five. But even more fascinating is that the lives of the first two to raise the dead overlapped as did the lives of the last two. So the first and last two were close together, again, sort of, like the first and last few perfect games. To say that another way, there were only two times in recorded history where one mere human prayed for another who had died and saw them come back alive. Why is that? Is there something for us to learn in that? I mean, what is it that we could possibly apply to our lives from the work of four super saints? Well... And Jesus, he raised people from the dead, and we do think we can learn from him, right? <laughs> so learning from two pair of super saints shouldn't be too much of a stretch for us, right? And first, well, let's go back to the issue of rarity. And when would you expect, when would we expect God to use who to raise a person from the dead? How about at the very beginning? Adam. Created in innocence, he and Eve were the only ones ever to walk in perfect innocence. Adam walked with God in the garden. But nope, not him. He never saw another human raised from the dead. Although, there was a time when he really would have liked to. How about a millennia later with Enoch? the only man in all of recorded history to achieve a perfect walk with God, such that he was simply taken to heaven and never died. The only guy that ever happened to him. Certainly this man, if any. Nope, 
Not him either. <laughs> Noah, 1700 years after Adam was created, the only righteous one with his family in the whole earth. Uh-uh. Not even this, this saint. Abraham. Nope. Moses. Nope. Joshua. Samuel. David. Who else? Solomon. You know, no, 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 no. None of those guys. Well, then when? And who? Well, the first time God waits until the nation of Israel is fully formed, even then he waits until it is at its lowest spiritual state. He waits until that nation is in great danger of completely abandoning faith in him to cause the first super miracle to occur. Well, 900 years before Christ, the first super miracle occurs. And there is a lot we can learn from it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. This widow is at the point of starvation <laughs> due to an extensive drought, which Elijah had foretold, <laughs> and appears not even to be a Jew. But she trusts that Elijah speaks the word of the Lord and cares for him. And in exchange, a miracle of provision keeps her and her son fed along with Elijah for quite some time. And now the great event. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged, laid him on his own bed, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. There's just so much to this amazing story. But today, we'll just have to satisfy ourselves with only a few points. First, Note who gets the glory, God. And note that she identifies Elijah with Yahweh, the Lord. Now we should take a moment to discuss the fact that the boy revived. There's a difference between simply only being raised from the dead and resurrection to eternal life. Uh, in one sense, those who were revived had it worse. They had to die twice. But then again, they got to experience an incredible miracle, very much firsthand. Uh, but let's go back to that thought of God getting the glory. What did she recognize? Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This miracle, done through the agency of Elijah, marked him as God's prophet and made it possible for her to see God more clearly. Now please recognize that the Holy Spirit moved Luke to record this event of Paul raising Eutychus from the dead to mark him, Paul, as a special agent in God's work. 
we will never be an apostle like Paul. Okay, that's done. And we'll never be a prophet like Elijah. If anyone tells you they have a ministry like the apostles or the prophets, just maybe ask them when was, when's the last time you raised somebody from the dead. <laughs> Might make a difference. These two times in history were very special epics, and God marked them and the men through whom you worked with very special miracles. It's also instructive that God chose to effect this first greatest of miracles in a way that only a single poor widow and her son knew that it happened. That was it. (laughs) Now, maybe that the greatest thing we ever do for God will be known only by a few people. Maybe only one. God will know. Are we okay with that? We all want the approval of people, and that's a good thing. It helps us to give ourselves away as Jesus gave himself away. But if we make that approval the goal rather than accepting it as a byproduct of our work for God, then it becomes an idol. It replaces God as that which drives us into action. Not good. So can we truly be satisfied with just God's approval? And good news, (laughs) he'll make sure we are. Elijah goes from this great miracle done in private to a very public confrontation with King Ahab and the evil prophets of Baal. Uh, He calls down fire from heaven. Seriously. And he very effectively prays for rain to end the years-long drought. And then after all these glorious miracles, the wicked Queen Jezebel threatens him. Then he was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life. And went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. I mean, Elijah, you were just used by God to effect the greatest miracle of all time. You're the Cy Young of prophets. How can you now question God's purpose in your life? Now, Of course, it's not like we ever question God's purpose in our lives, right? (laughs) What are you doing, God? Why did you let things get so bad? Don't you care about me? Actually, I feel a little better that Elijah struggled because I figure if a super saint like that struggles, (laughs) maybe it's okay when I do. (laughs) God may leave things unanswered in our lives specifically so that we remember that we do not stand on our own. We stand because God holds our hand. For Elijah, God shows up, and that's the basic answer that he gives in that still small voice. But then God does another thing. He tells Elijah he has another guy that's going to fill his place when he's gone. Sometimes it's good to remember we're not indispensable. (laughs) Even Super Saint Elijah can be replaced. He is to anoint Elisha to be prophet in his place. Some years and miracles later, when he has fully matured in his faith, and when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elijah said, As the Lord lives and as you live yourself, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. This seems repeated in a few more locations. Then Elijah parts the waters of the Jordan. And when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. 
And Elisha said, please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. The chariots of fire come from heaven and separate Elijah and Elisha. I'm not sure anything else could. And Elijah is taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. It's very important to note that when Elijah showed up, Israel had officially rejected God and they were sacrificing their children on the altars of Baal, killing their children. When he left, the king of Israel was consulting him to find God's will. Not that he really believed. (laughs) But by the time Elisha dies, the kingdom is officially worshiping Yahweh again. So, maybe we'd better examine Elisha's double portion of raising people from the dead. One day, Elisha went on to Shuman, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. So sure is she of Elisha's position with God that she convinces her husband to build a mother-in-law apartment onto the house for Elisha to stay at whenever he comes their way. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? After some polite parlaying. She finally reveals to Gehazi that she doesn't have a son and she wants Elisha to ask God for her. Elisha promises her a son a year hence. She has the son and when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers and he said to his father, oh my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. If anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. You think maybe this woman has heard the story of Elijah and Elisha and how they parted. I mean, she's a studier, this one. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child laying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth in his mouth, his eyes in his eyes, his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. 
Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house. Then he went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, <laughs> and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. <laughs> Doesn't that just make your spirit tingle? I mean, what an amazing story. There are so many fascinating similarities and differences in this story and of that of Elijah's that I'll just leave that for you to discover and enjoy. The similarity that most amazes me is that beyond Elisha and his servant Gehazi, only the mother and the child know the story. Well, of course, the whole world, once the Holy Spirit moved the biblical author to write down the inspired words. But at the time, this woman and her son had to tell everyone else what had happened, if anyone was to know. Now, I'm thinking they told everybody. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you? <laughs> but now we get to the part of the story that really kind of stabs at us. Because of this miracle, Elisha's fame spreads so greatly that it reaches the palace in Syria, which is the world power at that time, where Naaman, the head of the army, has leprosy. Now he comes all the way to Elisha, who sends him away with special instructions to be healed. He follows the instructions. He's healed. He comes back to offer fantastic wealth in gratitude. Elisha's stable in his spirituality, and he says, thanks, but no thanks. Now here's the surprising twist to the story. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Gehazi, <laughs> you saw God raise a child from the dead by Elisha's hand. Could you maybe trust that he was right in not taking this money? You know, you don't actually have to be a super saint to be tempted by what happens around that saint. The Bible tells us that God placed Naaman's malady on Gehazi. He got leprosy and all his descendants. Do you think God was mean to do that? Or do you think maybe there's a reason that it was recorded in the scriptures? There are people who try to use famous people. In this case, someone famous because he had the same spirit Elijah did, the Holy Spirit, who was working tremendously through Elisha. Incredible signs like, you know, maybe raising a child from the dead. Do you know why some people are so anxious to get their picture taken with a famous person or get their autograph or own something they owned and on and on? Is it because they really want to emulate that person? Hey, they recognize that they are doing well with, with the talents God has given them and they want to encourage both themselves and others to press forward and develop their own talents as well as they can. Yeah, right. <laughs> Most people who seek to be seen with a famous person don't care a whit about that person or what they have done. They only care about what they can get from that person. If I'm with a person people regard as great, then I must be great. They're really only interested in one person in the world, themselves. And that's bad enough when it's about simple worldly fame. But it's horrible when God's work is involved. And let's be very clear, Gehazi intended to use God's work to make himself rich. What can I get for me? <laughs> well, God will not allow his work, or word, 
to be used by anyone for their own gain. Clearly, not something as great and as rare as this. He gave Gehazi Naaman's leprosy because he would not allow his work in this critical time to be so horribly abused. You don't actually have to live with a super saint to be tempted to take advantage of the faith. We may not live in a time so critical as that of Gehazi's, but don't think we can use God's work in the church for our own benefit. Uh, God could still strike a person with leprosy or something worse. Maybe we'd never do anything so crass as to try to get rich off church people. But are there other ways we can be tempted to distort God's word for our own benefit? I'm sure you don't want to do that. And more good news. The Bible shows us a way to guarantee, guarantee we will never do that. Would you like to know what it is? I mean, think about it. Who got the glory when Elijah and then Elisha raised a child from the dead? All we have to do to protect ourselves is to make sure that what we are doing brings glory to God. Then we'll never have to worry about misusing God's Word. All right, here's some time for a little fun. I told you there was a fifth time that someone was raised from the dead in a very special way. Now, to understand it, remember that Elisha asked for a double portion of the Spirit, which we take to be the Holy Spirit, that Elijah had. Now, I know that probably just means the firstborn inheritance. That's the phrase that they used for that. But still, and I haven't worked it out myself, but I've heard it said that you can look at the miracles done around Elisha and you'll discover that they are double that of Elijah. Well, it sort of works in this case. Many years later, Elisha died and they buried him. Now, bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. (laughs) Isn't this a great story? I mean, you're in a somber funeral procession burying your friend and suddenly people come running by screaming, run for your lives. So you look for the closest tomb, pry it open, toss your poor buddy's body into the first spot and run for cover. And the next thing you know, your buddy's running right next to you. (laughs) Must have had to run. It's a pretty amazing story. And remember that this man was raised from the dead after Elisha died. That thought might come in handy later. Well, now we're going to jump many centuries to the New Testament era. We're going to go past the time of Jesus' ministry and his resurrection. And we've already read about Paul's reviving of Eutychus. But before that, who's the only other mere person in history to raise another person from the dead? Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, gazelle in English. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down and prayed. Turning to the body, 
he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and he raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And many believed in the Lord. All miracles being impossible in the natural Scream out, the supernatural is here. And all these miracles, God is here. <laughs> Which is why it's so wrong to pull a Gehazi and try to use miracles for one's own benefit. That would dull the message of God's presence. And it might interest you to know that immediately after this, Luke records Peter's involvement in the most shocking occurrence of the church era, that time when Gentiles came directly into relationship with God without going through Judaism. The point where the Jewish believers learned that the old system was to be abandoned. It was no longer necessary. Now, has it occurred to you that for this stupefying message to be accepted, Peter needed really strong support from God? <laughs> Perhaps the reason God allowed Peter to be the agent in the fantastic miracle of raising Tabitha is that he knew the Jews would have to be really sure that the Spirit of God was on Peter if they were to hear the message he was shortly to bring. And Paul's raising of Eutychus, he would shortly have to go to Jerusalem and stand for the same message. The very last chance for believing Jews, unbelieving Jews there, as an, and as a nation, to repent from their rejection of Jesus. Paul would be attacked, arrested, threatened many times with death, and eventually sent as a prisoner to Rome. What would be the feelings of those in the church while all this is going on? They needed to know that Paul really did have the Holy Spirit given to him in a special way. And in defending his apostleship, he was able to say, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. They could know that God really was with Paul and with them, and that their faith really was the true faith. Well, what do we think of all this, all these miracles raising people from the dead? Even though the Spirit of the living God was strongly with Elijah, Elisha, Peter, and Paul, they were not perfect. <laughs> but there was a man who was perfect. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each record one time that Jesus raised people from the dead. Curiously, none of them the same one. Each one unique. Soon afterwards... He, Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up, touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. 
And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole region of Judea and all the surrounding country. It's pretty clear why Jesus acted on his compassion in this way. But you know what happens right after this? John the Baptist, the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, and yet never performed a single miracle, by the way. From Herod's dungeon, John sent a word to ask Jesus, Are you the one? At the lowest point in, his, in John's life, Jesus was able to say to him, Look at the signs I'm doing, John. I'm even raising the dead. Be encouraged, John. Your work was not in vain. God is with you still. Mark records, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. There came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Amazed yet? (laughs) Do you see the work of God in this? God with us clearly yet? We once talked about how Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Why did he do that when he knew he was about to raise him from the dead? That reminds you that he'd been dead four days, which Jesus said was to make sure God was given glory. And now Martha's glorious statement before Jesus even raised Lazarus. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And, of course, after Lazarus was raised, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. The only other time Scripture records the reviving of the dead is at the very moment that Jesus died on the cross and raised. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Besides making it clear that Jesus' work was finished on the cross, this should cry out to us that Jesus is God in human form. And it should remind us of the second time Elisha was involved in a reviving. Only one greater than Elisha is here. Remember that we made a careful differentiation between reviving people from the dead and resurrection from the dead? Remember that being raised from the dead is the ultimate miracle and shouts, God is here. And that Jesus was not just revived, but resurrected. 
Just last week we read these words, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the shout of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Always be with the Lord. And when a person is raised from the dead, it shouts out, God is here. Yes? When all those who will believe are raised from the dead, when heaven and earth are destroyed and a new heaven and a new earth are raised, we will hear in reality what John heard in a vision, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Passed away. Death passed away. I love that. But passed away. It means nothing to God. Reviving his saints, eventually resurrecting his saints. It's what he does. It's who he is. Eliminating death so that there will never again be a need for resurrection. That's what he will do. And to God be all the glory. He lives and so we will live always. All right, a little bit more. There are a couple more facts about baseball's greatest achievement I'd like you to consider. There are nine innings in a regular baseball game. Three batters per inning in a perfect game. 27 come to play. 27 walk back to the dugout. Did you know that 12, 12 different times a perfect game was lost on the 27th batter? <laughs> oh, that has to hurt. And catch this. Twice, pitchers have retired the first 27 batters but not achieved a perfect game because their team hadn't made any points either. And the games went into extra innings where the other team did get runners to first base. The very best of us might get real close to doing everything right. But like Elijah and Elisha, Peter and Paul, we'll never pitch a perfect game. <laughs> no matter how close we get, we'll never make it. But that's okay. Truth is, we're not the pitcher in this game anyway. That's a job for a perfect saint. And like we said, there's only ever been one of those. His name is Jesus Christ. Perfectly man, perfectly God. We are not perfect. Anybody want to claim otherwise? I'm just checking to make sure I'm not wrong. <laughs> Maybe we'll even... Full of Gehazi. The good news, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. We don't have to be perfect. <laughs> it's not like we ever could be anyway. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave to us in Jesus Christ before the ages began. We're saved by grace, the unmerited favor of God through Jesus Christ. Now he calls us to a holy calling. Not perfect. Not yet. 
but set apart for God. So kind of give up on being perfect if that's your thing. <laughs> give it up. You're not going to make it anyway. <laughs> At least not yet. Be set apart for God. So you give up on that. You grasp onto your holy calling and then you can live a life so that people might actually say, why do you live the life you do? You can save that perfection for the new life that we'll live with Christ for all eternity. We hope you've enjoyed this message first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. Please feel free to worship with us maybe this next Sunday. You can also join us online at southbeachhope.org. We'd appreciate your financial support if that is possible. We are a tiny church in a small town, but at least with the help of Sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and everyone around the world. Hopefully we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture.